We read in Matthew chapter 10, or chapter 9, or this is actually chapter 10, we got this. Jesus summoned the 12. Now, I immediately get excited because this taps into my favorite genre of movie. We're putting the team back together, right? (laughs) Jesus is getting the 12 together because there's some big mission to do. And so I immediately lean in because I can't wait to hear about all these different people and their different skills. And there's like this montage as they go through each person. It's like there's a dossier on each different character. I love it. So we read, Jesus summoned the 12, and we read the names of the 12 apostles. We first hear about Simon, Peter, that is, the rock. We also then hear about his brother Andrew, then James Ben Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew the tax collector, James Ben Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. After Jesus has assembled this team, after that montage, we then read that Jesus then sent out these 12 people. And we'll talk about how Jesus sent them out and what Jesus wanted them to do. But first, we should stop right here and ask ourselves, huh, what do these 12 people all have in common? Now, most people would say, oh, well, you know, the common thread between all of these people is that they love Jesus. To which I would say, check out that last line, which is Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. So you can't even say these 12 had in common that they all love Jesus, right? Which raises the question, what do these 12 people have in common? Well, gender. And I have to tell you, just saying that out loud makes me feel very nervous inside. And the reason it makes me feel nervous is because there's been a lot of men who have been in positions of power in religious systems who have looked at the 12 listed here and used it as a weapon. Godless religion has used the gender of the apostles to discriminate against women for 2,000 years. And I will tell you that when you introduce yourself as a pastor of a Christian church today, most people assume that you are against women's rights and even against women's equality. This was not a feeling that I experienced alone. In fact, our elders experienced that together. And so in August of 2019, We wrote a statement and read it here about how we are for the empowerment of women and the commitments we are making to make sure that women are viewed as equals within the church and that they have a voice that is important to understanding what God is doing today. And so when we made that statement, we started to change the way we did church and we looked at stories like this that is often viewed as the Last Supper, it's viewed as a time when only the men got together and we looked through stories and we read philosophers and researchers and historians and they say actually a much more accurate picture is one that includes women and even children who were most likely at this Last Supper because a Passover feast is a communal event. And so a more accurate painting of the Last Supper isn't this, but instead is this. Not only that, but we've also talked about how when all the men who were close to Jesus abandoned Jesus because they were worried that they were going to die, who was it that stayed with Jesus at the cross? The women. The women stayed at the foot of the cross as Jesus breathed his last. Not only that, but we've told the resurrection story here so many times at Paradox. And we've pointed out how all four Gospels write that there are different people who discovered the empty tomb first But the one thing that they all have in common is what? Their gender. It was no matter what, no matter which gospel you read, 
Every gospel records that it was women who first discovered the tomb, particularly Mary Magdalene. And we also have talked about how there were apostles in the New Testament. After all, Mary Magdalene is considered to be the first apostle because she was the first one to discover the empty tomb. Not only that, but in the book of Romans, we've talked about the apostle Junia, who is mentioned as an apostle by Paul. Not only that, but there is another character who shows up in multiple verses. Her name is Priscilla. While she's not referenced as an apostle, specifically, there are many scholars, including Wilda Gaffney, who say, I believe that she was an apostle because of the way they talk about her and the reverence they put on her name. So we have highlighted these different stories because we have been committed to the empowerment of women. Not only that, but we have had annual services dedicated to the empowerment of women and understanding the feminine image of God. So in 2021, we did the feminine divine. In 2022, we did made in her image. And just a few weeks ago, in 2023, we did the, the service Brave. And what I liked particularly about Brave is that we placed it on Mother's Day weekend. Because after all, celebrating, church, church as a, celebrating Mother's Day as a church is a bit complicated. Everyone has a different relationship with their mother. There are people who are excited to be a mother. There are people who are struggling with infertility. There are women who have no interest in being mothers ever. And so we said, why don't we take that weekend and make it a celebration of the diversity of femininity? And it was one of my favorite services I've ever seen here at Paradox. It was such a hit, in fact, that when we talked about it with the elders, we decided that this is going to be the weekend that this women's empowerment service happens every year. We are planning to celebrate femininity on Mother's Day weekend every year. Which brings us to today. Tomorrow is Father's Day. <laughs> Am I crazy? Or shouldn't we be celebrating masculinity? And if your reaction is like this, I want you to know I have that reaction too. And the reason why is because we know how churches celebrate masculinity, and it hasn't gone very well up until this point, right? I don't know if any of you have heard a pastor called Mark Driscoll, but he has built his church on the whole idea that basically men are superior to women. And he claims that it's a whole celebration of masculinity. And so when a church like this one says, hey, should we celebrate masculinity this weekend? I want you to know I have full respect for if you're like, whoa there, whoa. Let's slow down and talk about this. To which I would say, yes, let's talk about this. Progressive folks are reluctant to celebrate masculinity, right? And if you consider yourself a progressive, then I have to say, welcome, we're glad that you're here. The truth is though, whether you like it or not, conservative folks are not reluctant to celebrate masculinity. So they're all celebrating masculinity, defining what masculinity is, and typically progressive folks are like, ooh, I don't know if we should celebrate masculinity at all. What happens in turn then, is that the other folks who are saying like, this is what masculinity is, are the ones who are getting to define it for young boys today. People like Andrew Tate, Jordan Peterson, Mark Driscoll, and Joe Rogan are telling boys, and boys are finding it, and they're hearing about what masculinity is now. I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm not a fan of this, because it's not a masculinity that I will say resonates with who I am. Not only that, but I have the privilege and honor of raising a boy 
And I don't want to be silent on what a healthy and good man is in society for fear of offending someone because I'd rather have him grow up knowing what a good and healthy man looks like in society. Not only that, but I want my son to hear this, not just from any place, but I'd love for him to hear this in church, right? I want him to hear in church what a discussion about healthy masculinity looks like. And here at Paradox, we have a tradition of saying that sermons here don't start discussions. I'm sorry, sermons here don't start discussions, they don't end them. Let me get that right. <laughs> and the reason I point that out is because I might say something wrong or offensive or incorrect here in the next 20 minutes. And I want you to know, please come and talk to me about it. What I'm about to say is not the end-all, be-all on what healthy masculinity is. Not only that, but we are part of a larger global Christian community. And we are part of the lectionary service and the liturgical calendar, which is this group of assigned readings from the Bible that Christians across the globe are reading together this weekend, and we are discussing the same passages as part of a global Christian community. And what has been assigned for this week is from Matthew 9 and 10, and I actually think there's a lot of conversation there about what healthy masculinity is. And so, with that, I'd like for us to dive into Matthew 9 and 10. I want to make three points about masculinity that I have found to be the case today. And I hope that you find this to be very helpful in your own life, whether you identify as a man or you do not. So, let's dive into Matthew 9 and see what we can talk about when it comes to healthy masculinity. Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38, read this. Jesus continued touring all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of God's reign, and curing all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. At the sight of the crowds, Jesus' heart was moved with pity because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus then said something to his disciples, but before we get there, I want to stop and focus on that word that is pity. This word pity is from the inclusive Bible, which is the translation we've been using lately here at Paradox. However, the word pity is from the Greek word splagizomai. Let me hear you say splagizomai. Splagizomai is a, a better translation for splagizomai, in my opinion, is the word compassion. And compassion is an important word because it reveals what Jesus is looking for when he speaks to his disciples. Jesus says, the harvest is bountiful, but the laborers are few. Beg the overseer of the harvest to send laborers out to bring in the crops. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm looking for partners who are willing to help build the gospel here in this world. And I'm not looking for any partners. I'm looking for some specific partners. And here, Christians often view Jesus as the kind of person that we are striving to be, which is a person who goes out and teaches good things, who goes out and hopes with the world, who goes out and heals sicknesses. But more than that, he is inspired by all this because Jesus has something that he is moved by. And that movement is the kind of characteristic that Jesus is looking for in these laborers, which raises the question, what kind of laborers are these? Well, they're laborers of compassion. Now, if you look up compassion in the dictionary, you will come across this definition that says, compassion is sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others, to which I just kind of find boring. I think this is a weak definition of compassion. And to understand why I think it's weak, you have to go back to the Latin root word that is the root of the English word compassion. That word is compassio. Let me hear you say compassio this morning. Yes, that was beautiful unison. 
Compassio, we have talked about this before, but it's important to call us back to this. Passio is the Latin word for suffer, and the prefix C-O-M is with. So when you practice compassion or compassio, you suffer with someone. I love the way Kenda Creasy-Dean transliterates this, but she says basically it means to suffer alongside another. So Jesus says, hey, I've been moved by compassion. I'm looking for other compassion, compassionate people to go out into the world and help me with this gospel message. And he says, I need people who will, are willing to go to the weak. And I don't need just anybody who's willing to go to the weak, but I need people who are willing to go to the weak and become weak with them. To which I would respond with two words. Uh-oh, weak and masculine don't mix well, right? These are two words that are polar opposites in our mind. And when we often start to mix them together, people start to get real uncomfortable real quick. This was picked up by the one and only Dr. Brene Brown, and she talked about this in a brilliant way in her TED Talk a few years ago. If you don't know Dr. Brown, she's written some amazing books. My favorite of hers is Braving the Wilderness. And in this TED Talk, she talked about shame and how shame is different for women than it is for men. She said these words, for women, shame is do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. She goes on to say that when women feel shame, they feel like they have to be all things to all people. She says, shame for women is the web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be, and it's a straitjacket. She then turns and says, but for men, shame is not a bunch of competing, conflicting emotions. Shame is just one expectation. She then turned to the audience and said, do not be perceived as what, audience? And the audience in unison said, weak. Whatever you do, men, if you start to feel shame, let people know that you're still in control. Never let them see you bleed, right? Now, when I think about all of these women empowerment services that I am proud to have seen and participated in as an observer, there's a common theme that goes through each of these different services that we've held here at Paradox. And these common themes often spur a lot of the same words. Words that keep coming up during these services are words like fearless, made in God's image, strong, courageous, and brave. And the reason it's important for us to say these words is because all of these words have been weaponized against women at some point, right? Women at some point have heard about how they're not strong or how they're, not, how they're weak or how they're not made in God's image. And so when we've watched the women on stage here go through all of these services, what they've shared is a reclamation of these words because it's very central to their core identity. Which raises the question, what words have been weaponized against men? Well, you can typically come up with a lot of different variations on the same thing, but it all comes back to one word, weak. Weak. When men feel shame, this is where we try to avoid. And whenever it comes to being weaponized against us, if we show any kind of emotion or if we show any kind of sense that we should be more compassionate, we are described as weak or cowardly or spineless. We've heard it all at some point. Now, I have to tell you that here, I have to share a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. This pet peeve comes from the fact that I've heard a lot about the phrase toxic masculinity. And toxic masculinity has helped us a lot in our society address some of the problems that men have perpetuated, right? And while I think it's important to acknowledge toxic masculinity, I've started to put the brakes on those conversations and said, 
I hear what you're saying about toxic masculinity, but do you have a definition for healthy masculinity? Because if you don't have a definition for healthy masculinity, you're basically just saying that men are inherently bad and will always be bad. But is there something that we can actually strive toward to become better? Now, sometimes people say, no, I don't have a definition of healthy masculinity. There are other times that people do have a definition of healthy masculinity, and it just comes down to people saying, well, you just need to be weak. Well, that's not inspiring. That's not fun to participate in, right? Now, it's important for us to address the feeling of male weakness, right? But it's not really exciting when somebody's definition of healthy masculinity is, well, you just need to cry more. It's like, yeah, I do, but is that it? Do I just need to be less of myself, less confident, less excited about who I am in order to be a healthy man? And if that's the end all be all, I have to tell you, I'm not inspired by it. And so we'll talk about a few more things in just a moment, but let's address weakness. But we also have to keep in mind, we always need something to shoot for that is inspiring to be part of. Otherwise, men aren't going to be part of it. So let's return to Dr. Brown. In that same talk, she said this thing. She started to tell an anecdote about what it means to be a man today. And she, this, this story was one of these stories that just changed the way I perceive a lot of things. She said, I did not interview men for the first four years of my study. She's done a ton of research. It was primarily focused on women for the first four years that she was in charge of research grants. She said, it wasn't until a man looked at me after a book signing and said, I love what you have to say about shame, but I'm curious why you don't mention men ever. To which Dr. Brown said, well, I don't study men. And the man said, well, that's convenient. <laughs> and Dr. Brown said, why? And the man said to her, because you tell us to reach out. You tell us to tell our story. You tell us to be vulnerable, but you see those three books you just signed for my wife and my three daughters? To which Dr. Brown said, yeah. He said, well, they would rather me die on top of my white horse than watch me fall down. When we as men reach out and be vulnerable, we get the excrement beat out of us. And the audience at this point, when she's telling the story, goes silent. And then he, she tells more of the story. He continues, and don't tell me it's from the guys and the coaches and the dads, because the women in my life are harder on me than anyone else. And after a pause, Dr. Brown said, so I started interviewing men and asking questions. And what I learned is this. After doing mountains of research into how men process shame, the conclusion she came up with is, you show me a woman who can actually sit with a man in real vulnerability and fear, and I'll show you a woman who's done incredible work. <sighs> Dr. Brown. She went on to talk about this. This is one of the best talks I've seen on YouTube. I highly recommend it. But it comes back to men and the way that we process all of those things that we are typically beaten down for. And the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, do we actually want to make room for male vulnerability, shame, pain, grief, weakness, and fear in our society today? Do we actually want that? Because it's not just going to happen unless we're all willing to put in some work, right? I have the privilege and honor of doing premarital counseling for several couples. And when I do heterosexual couples, I found a common theme in my premarital counseling. 
That is, these, this couple is going toward marriage, and as they're getting closer and closer to marriage, there starts to be a little bit more tension in the, every relationship. It's just a natural trajectory of things. And at some point, it happens about half the time, the woman in the relationship just says, you know what, he's just so sensitive. To which I respond, yeah, we're fragile creatures. We're just as fragile as the most fragile other person in the room. We bleed, we weep, we have uncertainties, we have insecurities, we have jealous tendencies. We're sensitive people. And while there is this message out there that men are above all of these different things, it takes a lot of work for us to sit with other men and acknowledge that this stuff actually happens. And I want you to know, as a man, I have been part of the conversation. I've both suffered from and made others suffer from me saying, oh, you're weak because you're doing this. And it's not just one gender that's the problem here. It's a lot of us working together to say, like, well, this isn't what masculine men do. So if we want to actually make space for this in our society, we have to acknowledge that it will require a lot of work from all of us. And if we don't want to put in that work, then we have to acknowledge that we have banned men from being compassionate. Because if we don't allow them to suffer alongside someone else, then they cannot be a compassionate person as Jesus asked. Healthy masculinity requires all of us individually to do a lot of work. To be comfortable with male tears. To be comfortable with male insecurities. To be uncomfortable with male uncertainties. That's the first point I want to make about masculinity brings us to Matthew 10, verses 1 to 7. We read that Jesus summoned the 12 and gave them authority to expel unclean spirits and heal sickness and diseases of all kinds. We then hear the names of the 12, and then Jesus sends them out. And as Jesus sends them out, he says, as you go, make this proclamation. The reign of heaven has drawn near. Now, that's a strange proclamation to make, but let's talk about what this means, because it means many different things to many different people. Typically, angry religion weaponizes this phrase, right? Hey, you never know when Jesus is coming back. You might as well give your life to God or you'll burn in hell forever. However, the way I read it, Jesus is actually being quite hopeful here. As in, guys, open your eyes. Heaven is as near as your next breath. And you may ask me how I know that. It's because of the phrases that follow next. He says, heal those who are sick, raise the dead, cure leprosy, expel demons. So in other words, this statement up here, the reign of heaven has drawn near, is a very hopeful statement. And I believe that this call, while Jesus is speaking to only men in this story, this is a call that goes to every person who reads this. We are called to be hopeful people, optimistic people, people who believe that tomorrow has the potential to be better than it does today. And if we say that all people are called to this, then men are called to be hopeful people as well, right? Now, when we think about what it means to be a man today, today men are being asked to adapt to a lot of changes in a very short time. A lot of them are very good changes, but there's a lot of changes that men have to adapt to, right? Now, one way that men have coped with this is they have gotten behind a desk and uh, looked into a camera and told the world what they thought about all these changes, and we have the audacity to call this news. It's not really news, is it? It's more like whining, right? And if you think I'm talking about one particular cable network in particular, I'm not. I'm talking about all of them. 
I've heard this from both sides of the aisle. I've heard this from different political parties. There is this tendency for men to get in front of the camera and tell you what they think about the changes, and it often comes off as whining. Now, you may have been paying close attention to this sermon and thought, well, Craig, we were supposed to express our fears. You just said that a few moments ago, to which I would say, there is a big difference between expressing fear healthfully and expressing whining. And the big difference between those two things is hope. It's hope. How do you hope that things will get better? How do you see things getting better? How do you celebrate when people do the right thing? How is it that you see things changing, even if you don't understand them, and you still hold hope through all of it? After all, men are being asked to adapt to a lot of changes in a very short time. And to my brothers, I would say very simply, we can choose to hope through all these changes, or we can choose to whine. And when I look at what Jesus does when he sends his people out, he doesn't say to the disciples, hey, go out there and tell everyone what's wrong with the world. Go out there and tell everyone we're all screwed, we're all going to die, give up now. Jesus says, go out there and tell people we're going to eventually cure leprosy, which we did. Isn't that incredible? Go out there and tell people that we're going to heal sicknesses that haven't, cures haven't been discovered for, which we did. And when I think about Jesus and what this call is and what it means to be a man today, there is this opportunity for men to whine a lot. My brothers, we are not called to whine. We are called to hope and to be hopeful people and to recognize that things are changing, right? And so I would encourage all of us, if we're thinking about how things change, you can express concern, you can express doubt, you can express fears. But is there an undercurrent of hope in your words, your mentality, your philosophy that makes you look at the world and say, but it's still good to be here, right? Which brings us to the third point I want to make about being a man or what this story has to do with being a man in 2023. Matthew 10:8, the last verse assigned by the lectionary is very short. Jesus sends all these people out to do these things, to tell the world that there's hope in this world, that things are good. And he says, just wants them to know why they're doing this. He says to the disciples, you received freely, now freely give. To my brothers, what have we received freely? Well, a lot, haven't we? And a lot of that is good. When I look at all of these different women's services that happened, they've been so moving to me. There is a common theme that runs through all of it. And while it's never been explicitly stated, it's very obvious to me upon watching it, and that is healthy femininity begins with an unapologetic love that God created you female. There's no need to apologize for being a woman that comes out very loud and clear. Now, if this is your first time here, welcome. I need you to know that we are a fully affirming church. So this includes trans women, of course. So... When I look at that and look at these different services, the question becomes, where does healthy masculinity begin? Because there has to be an origin point or a starting point for healthy masculinity to begin in order to be valuable. And I look at my son and I look at his friends that are boys. I look at my own friends and the men of this church. And I look at my family and all the ancestors that came before me. And I look at how much I admire them or love them or wish the best for them. And I think about all the things that I've learned from those different women's empowerment services, and I believe there's something pretty similar here. Healthy masculinity begins with an unapologetic love that God created you male. 
To which, if you're like me, you respond upon hearing these things with a lot of nervousness. And not just any nervousness, but nervousness times five. And the reason for this is because if you go to Google and type in unapologetic men, you're going to find people that we don't want to hang out with, right? Not at all. But when we think about this, this is really important. Because no matter how hard we try, we were created as men in this gender. And the truth is, the gospel is good news for all of us. And when I look at all of the work of the church and the different diversity that we've brought in and all of the different messages that we've heard, the fact is, you should never have to apologize for being the person God created you to be. You should never have to apologize for it. Now, you will have to learn how to apologize for other things in order to become fully human. That's very different. But for God creating you the way that you are, as a person in your identities and in your orientations and who you exist as a person, your origin doesn't need to be apologized for. To illustrate the difference between these two ideas, it's very different if a man walks in and says, I'm an unapologetic man, as opposed to, I am happy with who God has created me to be. Two entirely different things. And when I think about why it's so important we talk about these things, particularly in 2023, it requires a lot of reflection. Because I have seen men hurt other people. I've seen men hurt women. I've seen men hurt queer folks. I've seen men hurt other men. And so often, a common theme that runs through it is that men ultimately hate themselves. And what I have learned in over a decade of ministry is that you cannot learn to love another until you first learn to love yourself. And when you think about how personal gender identity is, it's important that we as a church work together to help everyone we encounter. A question that guides a lot of what we do here at Paradox is asking the question, how are we helping every person love who God has created them to be? Every person. How are we helping them with that? And that includes us asking the question, how are we helping every man love who God has created them to be? When I read through this story and Jesus ends, you have been given so much. I think about the gift of life that Jesus has given to me. And rather than thinking there's something wrong with it or thinking that there's something that I wish I wasn't, I make much more peace with who God has created me to be because healthy masculinity begins with an unapologetic love that God created you male. And so, my friends, when you think about what healthy masculinity means for you, I have a few wishes for you. May all of us become the compassionate people that God has called us to be. May all of us do the work that needs to be done to make room for male vulnerability, shame, pain, grief, weakness, and fear. May all of us stop whining and instead speak generously about hope. And may we be a church that helps every person love who God created them to be. And to my brothers, may you always remember that you were created in God's image and may you love the man that God created you to be. Amen.